Um, today we're going to be culminating a journey, a journey through the book of Genesis. You have been waiting for this day since September the 30th, 2018, wondering how long, oh Lord, how long will he trudge us through the book of Genesis? Well, we find ourselves in Genesis 50 today, wrapping up this journey. And as, as, we're, as you're flipping to Genesis 50, uh, just a couple of quick recognitions I, I want to make, a couple of special uh, things I want to point out this morning. Um, I, I was remiss in mentioning one of these last Sunday, but uh, uh, last Monday, Mr. Van Joyner became a 92-year-old, um, and today, Miss Alice Redding becomes a 92-year-old, um, and so we want to wish happy birthday to both of them uh, this morning. Uh, sorry we missed you last Sunday, Van, but uh, Miss Alice in the back, yeah? And he wasn't here last Sunday, but last Sunday, Reuben became a 10-year-old. We're, uh, Reuben's already gone to children's church. He's already gone to children's church. So, uh, uh, so we want to make sure we, everybody has, a, has, you know, get recognized for your birthday. That's always good. We had a lady in our last church that I busted into her Sunday school class playing Stevie Wonder's Happy Birthday to you. She had never heard the song before. I was, I was baffled, but, you know, uh, sometimes it's just good to, be, to know that people love you and recognize the special days in your life. Genesis chapter 50, if you have that place, I'd like to invite you, if you're able, to stand with me as we read this chapter together. Where we're going to walk through and, and, and look at this culminating journey uh, through the patriarchs and what happens with Joseph and his brothers. And it says this, starting in verse 1. Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father, and the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. When the days of warning for him were passed, Joseph spoke to the house of Pharaoh and said, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, asking, Behold, I am about to die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will return. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Go and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him were all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and the elders of the land of Egypt, and all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household. They left only the little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also they went up with him, or excuse me, there also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. You want to talk about a major funeral procession. There it is right there. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days mourning for his father. Now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. And there, they, therefore it was named Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had charged them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site for, from Ephron the Hittite. And there he had buried his father Joseph, excuse me, after he had buried his father Joseph, returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrong which we did to him? 
So they sent a message to Joseph and said, your father charged before he died saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin for they did wrong to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. For am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt. He and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's son and the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones up from here. And Joseph died at the age of 110 and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to see faith in the midst of your promise. When things look like they are ending, when things look like there will be no more, when there seems to be worry and doubt and fear, Lord, you have placed your promise deep within our hearts as you have made a covenant with us in which we can hope, in which we can have a future. And we thank you, Lord, for that. Give us hope now. Give us peace now as we look at your word and prepare us as your family for the days ahead to serve you and honor you. Well, we love you and we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. This passage of scripture, it appears to be just the culmination of the book of Genesis. It looks like it's a transition piece for the book of Exodus picks up and says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob and he lists them all out. In verse eight, it says, now a new king arose over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. And it looks like we're just kind of in that transition. But if you'll remember, as we've walked through the book of Genesis over these last nine, 10 months, what we have continued to see is God's faithful hand step by step, by step. Another way we can look at it is to know that our God is faithful enough that when it looks like one chapter is ending, a new chapter is beginning, and he has already written that chapter. He has already taken care of the details. And here we have in the book of Genesis, Joseph and his brothers mourning, and then we end up with Joseph dying, and we're gonna ask ourselves the question, God, what about your promise? What about your promise? Because, Lord, you promised this land. You promised this family that they would be there for generations, but God, Israel's dead, Joseph's dead, and they're stuck in Egypt. You ever been stuck somewhere? Maybe you've been stuck on the side of the road. It's back to school time. One of my favorite back to school stories is the day I moved into college at Mercer University in Macon, Georgia. I had a 1989 IROC Z Camaro. Man, it was royal blue. Her name was Bonnie Blue. Man, I loved that car. Woo, man. I thought it was a chick magnet. The problem was it didn't magnetize anything. But I loved that car. 
Now, about a week before I was to start school, I had a small accident in the car. And in the small accident, the police officer that responded to the accident uh, recognized that uh, the tires on the car were kind of like some of you men, missing a little on the top. And so here we go with the car. And I talked to my dad and I said, Dad, I don't have the money to put new tires on the car. And he said, well, I'll tell you what. Let me put two tires on the front, and then in a couple of weeks, after you've been at school, you can come back, and we'll put two new tires on the back. Okay, we'll do that. So we put two new tires on the front, two racing slicks on the back, we'll call them. And I noticed the morning before I was to leave to drive up the interstate 100 miles to Macon, Georgia, to go to college, that my car wobbled a little bit. I didn't really think anything of it. I was 18. I was about to conquer the world. I was enrolling in college, getting out of the house. I mentioned it to dad and he said, well, yeah, we'll, we'll get that adjusted when we get your tires fixed here in a couple of weeks. Up the interstate we go. Mom and dad are in mom's car. Both my sisters at the time were living in, uh, um, well, one sister had just moved to Palmetto over here, and the other sister was living up in, in, uh, in uh, Lithia Springs. So they were going to come down and see, you know, see the dorm room. I was going to meet a new roommate. Never met this guy before. I had no idea. I talked to him on the phone, and he sounded like a kid that was in my calculus class that was really, really smart and helped me a lot with calculus. I was like, this is going to go good. We get about to Byron. You know where Byron is. There's the big peach balloon over there. It's nothing like the Gaffney peach where our Baltimore mission team stopped and got a picture. If you haven't seen that, it should be on the Facebook, church Facebook. But we're right there about, the, about the, the peach. And all of a sudden, it happens. My passenger rear tire decides that instead of being one cohesive unit, it wants to be about 42,000 units explodes on the side of the road and I get over and I pull and I stop and I watch my parents drive by now here's the thing about interstate 75 in Byron if you miss exit 147 excuse me exit 149 You've got to go all the way four and a half miles. Now you don't have to. They put a new exit in. In those days, you had to go all the way up to that South Macon exit and turn around and come back. I was stuck. Wasn't anything I could do. I had to wait on someone else to get there to fix my situation. You know what made it even worse? Mom and dad get back and those Camaros didn't have a real spare tire. What they had was this deflated dummy tire with a can of compressed air that would inflate it once you got it on. This was a 1989 Camaro that in 2001 needed to use the tire. Do you think there was compressed air in it? No. Do you think there was a tire shop open within 15 miles at 2.30 on a Saturday afternoon in August? No. No. I was stuck longer than I thought I would be. See, the people of Israel, they have come to Egypt thinking, well, once we get out of this famine, once the weather changes a little bit, once we get there, then we'll be able to come home. But that's not what happened. Joseph is still there and they're still living in the land of Goshen, but now Joseph's dying and there is no end in sight to when the people of Israel will be able to move home. They were stuck. 
But in this whole narrative, we find Joseph and his brothers in a period of mourning. If you notice with me that what happens in this passage of scripture is we left last week with Israel dying. Israel dies. He's 147 years old. He passes from this life into the next and he makes them promise that they will bury. And it picks up, it says, Joseph fell on his father's face, wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded the servants, the physicians to embalm his father. It said it was a 40 day process to embalm. That really makes me appreciate what they do at places like Parrot. 40 days. And then another 70 days for mourning. These people went all over and Joseph's family is just continuing to mourn. The sons of Israel's mourning. And they take this, they take this caravan up to fulfill the promise because Israel gave explicit instructions. Bury me in the same grave as my father, as my father's father, and as my wife, Leah. Take me there. Do you understand the amount of faith that Israel possesses in the promise of God, that that is his possession, that that is his land, and therefore it is his rightful place of burial? That the generations beyond him that he would never see, he says, Joseph, I never expected to see your face, but God has granted that I would even see your sons. I get to see my son and my grandsons all at the same time carry my bones Pharaoh gives the blessing and the caravan goes it's so great that the Canaanites see it and their words were this is such a great period of mourning for the Egyptians all because Israel had faith in the promise of God that this God would deliver what he said he would deliver see sometimes when we feel a little stuck we feel stuck because we forgot what God said We haven't looked back to the promise that he made. We've made assumptions about what we think should happen, but how often do our assumptions about what we think should happen actually line up with what God said would happen? They're mourning. They go and they have their time of burial. There is a mourning ritual that takes place just outside of the land of Canaan. And it says that they get there to the field. It says, verse 13, his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham, Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. Abraham had bought it to bury Sarah, his wife. This is the family ritual. But then the narrative shifts a little bit. We see Joseph's brothers having a little fear and anxiety that Joseph's going to retaliate. Now, notice with me that it says that, verse 15, that Joseph's brothers realized Israel's gone, dad's dead. What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays his back in full for all the wrong that we did him? Now, this is natural person thinking, right? The only reason Joseph hasn't whooped our tail because he's got all the power in Egypt and he could do it. The only reason he has is because daddy's still around. You know, sometimes you feel a little safer when dad's around, right? A, a, a little more. I tell you, that's one of the greatest, this is one of my greatest feelings as a dad. I don't want my kids to be afraid. I don't want them to be scared of something. But when something does, and they come to me for shelter. They come to me for protection. You know, 
Addison wakes up in the middle of the night because there's a thunderstorm. She comes into our room and she's coming to us for protection. Something jumps up. Daddy, and you come. Well, Dad's the only reason Joseph hasn't executed his vengeance upon us. That's kind of natural, isn't it? We've got students that are in school. You've got somebody that's been, you know, somebody that's been messing with you. And as long as the teacher's in the classroom, they're not going to mess back unless the teacher's back's turned, right? So what gets said? Just wait till we get outside. Wait, wait till we get to lunch. Wait, wait till we get in the, in the restroom. All of these threats because that's when the authority that could protect is nowhere near to be seen. So I'm going to, I'm going to step in there. forgot my water Israel's gone dad's not here to protect what are we going to do I want you to notice with me that there is a major character assumption that is made on the part of the sons of Israel about their brother Joseph Joseph who has come in and welcomed them Joseph who has brought the entire family and given them the best land in Egypt on which their flocks could thrive and has gone above and beyond to provide for them and it says look I'm your brother I am here God sent me ahead of you this is all good and and they're making the assumption that you're you're a lie and a cheat and you're going to harm us isn't it natural for us to just assume the worst in someone else to, to think that their motives are, are ultimately for our destruction and their own benefit. It's, and it's a shame that because of the curse of sin, we live in that kind of world where it's natural for us to just assume the worst ones. But the gospel says, don't assume the worst in one another. Look at one another in love, in, in, in appreciation, and in joy for what God has done. This is your brother. Why would he do this? It doesn't matter that it was 40, 50, 60 years ago that you sold him. This is your brother. And Joseph says that this is one of the greatest theological statements in the entire Old Testament. Look at, look at Joseph's theology here. Joseph says to his brothers, verse 18, excuse me, verse 19, do not be afraid. <laughs> there it is. Isn't that the way that God has revealed himself time and time again? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to step out into what is in front of you, into what is before you. God has said time and time again, Abraham, do not be afraid. This will be your land. You will have a family and I will bless them. Isaac, do not be afraid. Jacob, do not be afraid. Go back to Esau. Make this thing right. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for I will bring you back time and time again. And Joseph brings and says, do not be afraid because I am not God. Sometimes we've got to remind ourselves that we're not God. There's a guy named Charles Lowry. Charles Lowry, uh, is, he's been a pastor. He was on staff at First Baptist Dallas in the early 80s. He's a Christian psychologist. He is a really funny guy. And Charles is probably late 70s maybe. Um, and, and we've gone to a couple of uh, pastors' marriage retreat things uh, when we were still in South Carolina and he would kind of be the keynote speaker and just kind of help out with us. And he always starts it off the exact same, exact same way. And he makes everybody take this pledge and I'm, I'm going to get it wrong, but here's the gist of it. Um, I am not, nor have I ever been, the master of the universe. And therefore, I resign. 
That's what Joseph is saying. I'm not God. Vengeance is not mine. But notice where he takes it. Because I am not God. I want you, my brothers, to see what God has been doing in the background. So he says, and you know these verses well. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. I mean, just think about the weight, the theological weight, the interpersonal weight, the, the, the relationship one to another weight that Joseph just said. Everything that has happened in your heart, it was wrong, it was evil, it was deceitful, it was disgusting. But God used it anyway. God brought about something beautiful. Look at all the lives that are being preserved because God's hand was still involved. That doesn't mean go out and sin willfully and God's going to take care of it. But it does mean that we can look at the evil of this world with an understanding that God has not abdicated his throne. He is still in control. God meant it for good in order to, present, to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. And, and before we leave this and go on to the, the third little blank there, I want to make sure that, that, that I'm, I'm careful with this because I do not, I do not believe that the Bible teaches us and guarantees us that in this life and every circumstance, we will see where God's hand is active. I don't believe that the Bible shows us that. Look at Israel. Israel dies before this statement is made. Israel dies before he sees the fullness of the promise realized. I believe that because God is God and because God is faithful to us, we can walk in faith that even in the bad, God is working and God is still in control even if we never see it. One day it's gonna make sense. Peter says this way, right now we're looking at a glass dimly, but one day we'll see clearly. That's gonna be a beautiful day. But then Joseph dies. Joseph dies, 110 years old. I know that seems like he's lived a really, really long life, but in the scheme of everybody else we've talked about, that's, that's pretty young. His daddy was 147. Moses was in, I mean, Moses, Moses hadn't come around yet. Abraham was in his 170s. I mean, Methuselah, 969. I mean, 110, that's a spring chicken, man. He's still starting for the varsity squad, right? I mean, he, he's 110. And in his death, I want you to notice what he says. I want you, I'm about to die, but God, verse 24, will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. You see that? He's dying in hope of the promise. You're in a place, you're stuck in a land that is not your own. You feel like you're going to be here forever. You think it's never going to get better. But I want you to know that God's promise is still ahead of you. It's still out there. 
So, so I'm about to die, but God is still going to take you and place you in that land that he promised to our grandparents, to our great-grandparents, to my dad. So when you go, verse 25, carry my bones up from here. That's dying with hope. That's dying with peace. And in this whole entire passage, what we are able to have an honest conversation with is how God's people pass from this life to the next. Because the reality is you will not die accomplishing everything that you hope to accomplish. You will not die with knowing everything you wish you knew. You will not die having seen everything that God has to offer. So you have to die in hope. You have to die in peace. You have to die in anticipation. Anticipation of God's promises being fulfilled conditions the way his people respond to life's circumstances. Anticipation of what God has said would take place that even if we don't see it take place, we know that God said it, so it will happen. That conditions the way that you and I respond when things go great, when things go bad. It's kind of like college football. I like college football. If you've been here for the last couple of years with me, you know I like college football. There's something about watching a college football game in real time that brings out this non-pastoral side of me. There's something about what, especially when there's a bitter rivalry at stake, that just brings some angst. There's something different about watching a game where you do have a vested interest, but you already know the outcome. For example, last night, the SEC network was showing a replay of last year's Florida LSU game. Now, I do not like LSU. They don't know how to spell go. Go is two letters, G-O. E-A-U-X spells eox. So geox tigers is what they say down at LSU. I can think of just the, the, the guttural response and the losing of the voice of many Florida LSU games that I've watched over my lifetime. But last night I'm watching it because I knew Florida had already whooped LSU last year. It didn't matter that we're in the fourth quarter, we get down 19 to 14. I knew the outcome. See, God's promises are so much greater than, Flor than, than Florida football, of course, but college football in general, because what we have is the assurance that the outcome is there even if we're looking like we're losing. And our anticipation of God's promises condition how we respond. So I'm looking at this game and I'm thinking, all right, so Felipe Franks just twisted his knee. All right, Joe Burrow just let him out. Man, we couldn't stop Brissett and he just ran for these touchdowns and we're down. It's in the fourth quarter. Our offense is stalling. Things are not looking good. I could get caught up in that, which I did last year, and wonder how was this going to play out? 
And when that, that incomplete pass happens, there's some anxiety and some frustration. When that, when that, when that field goal gets missed, there's like, when, when there's an offsides, when there's a penalty, it's just all of this. And you just want to throw your hat. You want to throw whatever you can. You want to kick the cat. You don't kick dogs, you kick cats. Um, sorry, cat people. Who's got time for a quick cat joke? Does anybody know why God made cats? Didn't think so. All right, so, um, <laughs> sorry, cat people, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So, so anyway, um, coming back to it, uh, <laughs> my ADD mind gets off so far. If I did not live last night in light of the fact that I already knew the outcome everything would have brought frustration to me. Even though the game was a year old. And too often we're running through games that are a year old because we have no anticipation that God's actually gonna fulfill his promises. We get caught in the muck and the mire and the circumstance now, we get stuck. See, when I was moving into Mercer University in 2001 and I was stuck on the side of the road, my hope, even though I was frustrated at the circumstance, even though I knew I was gonna be missing this, 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 and this, and I had to be there to get my key by this time or it would be the next day before I could get my key and all these things, even though I knew all that, what I knew was my dad is going to take care of this. He will be here with the tire as soon as he can. Your heavenly father will fulfill his promises because they're not too far away. They're not out of his reach. And so what do we do with this? How do, how do we connect? Hey, well, what, what, what does this pull into my heart today? Because you're sitting there looking, okay, I hear you, the anticipation of the promise, but you're talking about a couple of dudes that died a couple of thousand years ago and, and, and I, I don't know them. Okay, here we go. Faith in Jesus Christ is not just a means of forgiveness but it's a way of life under God's promise. See, Joseph stands here as the only one that could, could actually offer forgiveness, the transaction of forgiveness to the brothers that wronged him. And they exercised lack of faith in who Joseph was, but acted in fear. But Joseph stands there and says, not only am I going to forgive you, but I am going to bless you. And when Jesus walks into your life, when Jesus stands there with his, with his nail-scarred hands and says, you reach into my hand because I am offering you the gift of salvation, the gift of life. He's not just saying, I'm going to forgive you. He's saying, I want you to live as I live. This is a way of life. Because what is bound up in forgiveness is not just a get out of jail free card, but a new way that you operate in real time under the promise that God made to forgive you. That includes a hope and a future. You're, you're not just forgiven for today. You're forgiven for eternity. You're not just forgiven for the flesh and blood, you're forgiven for the soul and spirit that goes on beyond the flesh and blood where God's promise rests. Because the book of Ephesians tells us that we are already seated in those heavenly places with him because of what he has transacted in our life when he brought us from death to life. So faith in Christ is not just, oh, okay, you're forgiven. It's a way of life. It's a consistent walk under a new manager 
who will show you and tenderly guide you through the ups, the downs, the highs, the lows, the good days, the dark days, so that you can anticipate the fulfillment of God's promises in everything that meets you. If you forget that promise, if you forget what Christ has done, if you forget that you are living under that pledge of allegiance to him and to him alone, you will forget how he's called you to live. Faith in Jesus Christ is not just a means of forgiveness. It's a new way of life. See, that new way of life does something. Because the gospel will change how you and I look at life. The gospel changes how we look at life. We could, we could simplify and call it, this is just a, a shift in worldview. A worldview is how we, the lens through which we see the world, its circumstances, how we see life, how we see afterlife, how we see everything. That, that's worldview. It's not just, you know, I see red is red and green is green and blue is blue and black is black. That's, that's, it's, not, it's not like the physical thing. My worldview is I look out on my front porch and I see a tree and I see grass. Y'all know about the tree in my front yard. I talked about it last week. Um, but all of these things that we have that we can see, now that's, the worldview is what shapes who we are and the core of what's going on. And see, God's promise, the gospel, now becomes the lens through which we interpret everything. So, Here's five things that are just kind of listed out for us specifically out of this text. We're going to pull them out of here. Um, but the, the, the first one is conquest. Conquest. You're like, well, where's conquest in here? If you remember, the land that was given to Abraham already had somebody living in it. Okay? It wasn't new construction. It was, it was getting the keys to a house that's got squatters and the squatters don't want to give up their house readily. See, conquest is trying to find fulfillment in what was lost. You and I are consistently on a conquest. Joseph's brothers were on a conquest to save their necks. They go to Joseph, hey, Joseph, let me tell you, I don't know if you ever heard, uh, I don't know how thin the palace walls are here in Egypt, but I don't know if you heard or not, but this is a conversation we had with dad a few days ago before he passed away, and, and you're supposed to forgive us, right? That was their conquest. They wanted to save their neck. They, they didn't want to suffer the consequence. See, conquest looks at how each of us seek to fulfill what was lost. Well, you might not be trying to save face with a brother that you offended, but each one of us is trying to save face with a deity. And we try to fill our lives with things that we hope will appease this God. So it might be if we have this kind of financial status, if we have these friends. We try to fill our lives with idols that will somehow fulfill us and somehow bring to us this level of acceptance and its conquest. We want to get more, we want to gain more. But the gospel changes how we look at all that. Because we're looking at life through how God sees us in the cross. We're looking at life through what he has done to redeem us, to call us his own. And so in doing so, all of these other things just fade to the background. 
We're no longer trying to live up to hopefully God will welcome us in and, and set the table for us. We're, we're boldly pro- pro- approaching the throne of God because the blood of Christ has covered us and because the Holy Spirit of God has gone before us and has prepared for us the ability to enter into his presence. That's a whole different conquest. An entirely different conquest that we can only embrace because of the gospel, because of God's promise. What about death? The gospel changes how we look at death. Paul talks about how we are those that die with hope. We don't die as the rest of the world. We die with hope. Look at Israel. Israel says, hey, I'm about to die. So take my bones and bury me in my place because God said that is our land. That's hope. Joseph says, brothers, I'm getting ready to die and you're gonna be stuck here, but when you get out, when God delivers, take me with you. The reality is we have no idea the day, the hour, the time that Christ Jesus will split open the sky and reappear. I want you to know that's a promise, that he's coming back for us. He didn't abandon us. He didn't leave us. He said, I'm with you forever and I'm going to come back and get you. It's almost like he put us on layaway for a little while and that's okay. Here we are waiting for that day. But the reality is the vast majority of us are not going to be living when Jesus Christ comes. I could be wrong. He'd come back. Man, he can come back for lunchtime today. Sorry, Corey, you'll miss your shower. But Jesus could come back. You get something better than a, than a shower curtain there. And so, so what's gonna happen is Jesus will come back. He's gonna come back. But what if we don't live to that day? We die and hope that he's still coming. We, we, we die and hope that he has already secured for us the place where our eternal soul will be because he's already seated us there in the heavenly places. We, we die in hope of that future fulfillment. Just like Israel. Just like Joseph just like Moses, just like David, just like Peter, just like Paul, just like John, just like men and women that you have known that have lived a life of faith. We look at death as a time of hope, not a time of despair, yeah, it hurts, it stings. (laughs) 70 days they mourned when Israel died. They did their period of mourning when Joseph died. Because that's natural, but it's not without hope. What about evil? (laughs) This is one where I believe that Christians in America have to reclaim the gospel and the way it shapes the way we look at the evil in others' lives. Even the evil in our lives. Because too often, we want to put that long bony finger out there and say, evil, wicked. We want to shelter ourselves from the, the wickedness of the world. And I'm not saying, man, run headlong into the wickedness, embrace it, love it. No, no. We want to shelter ourselves and pull back without saying, what is God doing in spite of this? Because if we do believe that we have all come from darkness to light, if we do believe that we've all come from death to life, then the evil that's around us is just symptomatic of the need of the gospel that compels us to go forward and say, God, you're going to use this in spite of the evil that was there. Even when it's evil done to you. No, 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 that can't be right. That's only got to be when it's evil against somebody else. But when it's done to me, I've got to, I mean, I've got to bow up. I've got to, I've got to stake my ground. I've got to protect, right? No. 
The follower of Christ, because of the gospel, your first recourse to personal evil has to be, where is God's hand and what will he bring out of this? What could he bring out of this? Not what can I get out of it. What will he bring? What will God use? See, that was Joseph. You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. What about relationships? See, the gospel demands that our relationships be handled differently. Differently. Did you know that God didn't save you to live in a vacuum? Man, if he did, you would not be here. We would have one of those weird experiences where, well, evangelism wouldn't exist, basically. You would be dependent on having to find a Bible somewhere that you could read. And the moment you profess faith in Christ Jesus, boop, you're gone. He takes you immediately. Like, beam me up, Scotty. Like, you're, you're, you're gone. We wouldn't have church services. We wouldn't have any of this. Because if he was saving you in a vacuum, then all it would take was, in the moment you profess faith in Christ, there's no need for you to be here anymore because you immediately go on to that next life with God in Christ Jesus. You're gone. But instead, he redeemed you and he saved you and he left you in a place where you're gonna have people around you. Life would be a lot easier if it wasn't for other people, wouldn't it? You love your kids, you love your, your family, you love your spouse, you love your neighbors, you love, you lo- but sometimes they make you a little baddie, don't they? Yeah. Let you preach next week. Sometimes they make you question everything that is good in the world. Sometimes they're the ones that hurt you the most. And the closer and the tighter the relationship, the more it stings, the more it hurts. Somebody you've met once or twice lies to you, punches you in the mouth, steals your cat, they did you a favor, steals your cat, and that kind of hurts. Why do you do that? Somebody that you're the closest to does the same thing. It hurts all the more, right? It's a symptom of the brokenness, this conquest. We're trying to recover what was lost, that unity, that that we're trying to fill everything in our life to just be window dressing over what was broken, what was lost. But then we get into relationships in real time. And whether it's our family or our church family, there's gonna be a brokenness. And what Joseph says here is, look, you are my flesh and blood brothers. But I don't want this to be between us. See, the gospel shows us that relationships are to be reconciled and mended even if it's at personal cost. The gospel says, look, Jesus, the son of the living God, the one against whom sin was committed, he took the personal cost and broke his own body, shed his own blood. Make no mistake about it. Rome didn't kill Jesus. The the Jewish Sanhedrin didn't kill Jesus. Read the gospels. He's in control of the entire situation. Even says in the gospel, nobody takes my life from me. I give it willingly. Personal cost so that we could be reconciled to God 
as it demonstrates that we can be reconciled one to another. You, you notice the cross has, has two, two lines, right? It's got a vertical and it's got a horizontal. Vertically, we're reconciled to God. Horizontally, we have the ability to be reconciled to one another because the gospel shifts the way we look at life. It also shifts the way we look at possessions. See, Joseph was the vice regent of all of Egypt. The only person that had more power than Joseph was Pharaoh. He had everything at his disposal. He's the guy that you want tithing at your church. And he had it. But he said, you know what? This is not an end of itself. This is a means because God's promise is bigger than the land of Egypt. God's promise is bigger than all that I have. So when you go from here, take my bones there. Take them there. Because all that I possess here is nothing unless the God who made the promise to my father and my grandfather and my great-grandfather has his hand covering and guiding and directing. It shifts how we look at possessions. And the third thing we find in all this is that the land where you and I live now is not our destiny, nor is it our home. I know, you learned it in elementary school. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Island. That's all I can remember. This land was made for you and me, right? We, we sing these songs. I, I just, at the risk of offending somebody, and I'm sorry if I do, it's not my intention to outright offend you. If your hope is in America, you are sorely mistaken about what God is doing. This is a good country. There are a lot of great things. I mean, we, we've, we've got laws, we've got protections, we've got freedoms, so much so that there are people that want to come from other nations and other countries. And even if they know they're going to be detained and put in a facility, it's still better than where they've been. That's great. But God did not save you to leave you in America. God did not redeem you to make this your destiny. Your 401k, your house, your land, your car, all the things that we have here, those are just part of what God has placed in our life, but that is not our destiny. You do not get your best life now. I don't care what book you read about it. You don't. Your best life is in the home that God has for you. So Joseph says, I don't want this land. I want the land where I've never lived because that is where God has promised. You and I live in anticipation of that land. That beautiful land that in Revelation chapter 21, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth. This one, America included, your house included, my house included, has passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw a new holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among 
among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. This is our destiny. This is the promise of God and it sure is in Christ Jesus. Have you trusted Christ? Have you placed your hope in his promise that he will save you, he will redeem you, he will take you to that place? If you can't say yes, I want you to come and talk to me this morning. Put your hand in Christ's hand. Accept his gift, accept his way, accept the truth that he has offered you this morning.